But some of you were here on Wednesday nights a while back when we studied all the way through the Bible. We started in Genesis and we went all the way to the book of Revelation and we took one book a night. There were a few nights we, we uh, buddied up short books, but mostly it was one book a night. And that series was kind of like wind sprints. It was kind of like line up at the beginning of the night and we're going to run as fast as we can and cover as much ground as we can and get through as much as we can because some of those books are really, really long to try to cover it and summarize it in 30, 40 minutes. And so this is going to be very different. We're taking a relatively short passage and we're spreading it out over multiple weeks. This will be more like a leisurely stroll, let's call it, instead of wind sprints. Just a leisurely stroll through the Lord's Prayer And we're going to build up to it. We're not even going to get to the Lord's Prayer itself tonight. We've got to kind of lay a little bit of groundwork before we just jump in and and tackle it. But once we get there in a couple of weeks, we're just going to take one phrase uh, at a time. And my hope is that the study, as we move through the Lord's Prayer very slowly, uh, causes you to slow down and think about what's in the Lord's Prayer. It's so familiar to us. Many of us have it memorized. You've said it as a child. You've said it before football games. You've said it at big events or funerals or different things. And we can just say it. It just sort of can roll off your tongue without a whole lot of thought about what it is you're actually saying. And so hopefully we'll slow down and think through that a little bit in this series. I want you to take your Bible out, and I want you to find the Gospel of Matthew To start off each night, we're going to read it together, and we're going to read it out loud. And here's what I'm asking you. I'm asking you to read with me out of the ESV. So I'm using the ESV. Some of you have that. If you don't have that, the little red Bible underneath your seat or in front of you is an ESV, or maybe you can find it on your phone. That way we're not all saying a whole bunch of different words. And not just the words in the middle are sometimes translated differently, but different translations handle the end of the Lord's Prayer differently. I don't know if you've ever noticed that or not. One of our older adult ladies pulled me aside uh, a couple of months ago and said, Hey, I went to a funeral, and we read the Lord's Prayer together, and they didn't say the ending right. They left it off. They didn't say the part about, in yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen. And she said, what kind of church is that that would cut the ending off? And I said, very carefully, the Bibles in your church do not have the ending printed in them either. And so just in case you're curious, we're not going to talk about this tonight, but we are going to get there. We'll spend a whole week talking about it, so don't panic. Uh, I got on my Bible software, Bible study software. Uh, I use BibleWorks. And here's just a a breakdown of a short selection, okay? The ESV and the NIV. How many of you have an NIV? Some of you. The New Living Translation. That's one that I use from time to time. And the American Standard. Those translations stop with the Lord's Prayer with the phrase, deliver us from evil, or some of them say, deliver us from the evil one. Period. That's it. Nothing about yours is the kingdom, the power, the glory forever. Amen. Just stops. Uh, How many of you have uh, King James or New King James? Some of you are old school, right? Uh, That one ends with, thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. King James and New King James include it. Uh, The CSB 
is the, the Holman Christian Standard Bible. It's the new one that Southern Baptists have put out in the last couple of years. And the New American Standard. Anybody use New American Standard? They have the last phrase, but they mark it so that you know it's different. One of them puts it in brackets and one of them puts it in italics so that you know we're putting this in here, but wink, wink, something funny's kind of going on here. So I'm just telling you, when we read it, don't get mad at me. We're going to read it out of the ESV. It ends without the kingdom and the power and the glory, amen. Some of you are going to twitch when we get to the end of it. You're going to be like, i got to say it. If you got to say it, then say it. Just go for it. Just whisper it under your breath or shout it out loud or whatever you need to do. Go for it. Um, we'll spend a whole week talking about that when we get there. But just to start each week, uh, let's read it together out of the ESV. Uh, so it's Matthew chapter 6, and we'll start sort of in the, the middle here of verse 9. And so I'll give you a chance to find it, Matthew 6, 9, and then we'll read it together, and then we'll jump in. You ready? Here we go. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I knew it. I knew you people. Some of you guys, you just got to do it. That's okay. That's okay. That's okay. I want to talk to you just to start tonight about sermons. The title of this lesson is Sermon, and we're thinking specifically about the Sermon on the Mount. And so I just want you to think about uh, sermons for a second. Sermons, if you think about it, are a lot like meals. A sermon is a lot like a meal that you eat. Um, Some meals are bad, and you eat it and you say, that was gross. That was not good. Some meals are harmful to you. You eat it, and then you feel sick, and you think, that was terrible. I feel like I've been poisoned, like they they snuck something in there. That wasn't right. Some meals are just, eh, it's it's okay. Like tonight at my house, we all went home, and we had sandwiches. No one's going to remember that in a month. What did you have for dinner Wednesday night? Eh, sandwich, eh. Turkey, cheese, it's forgettable, right? But it's important. It gets you through the night. It gets you to Thursday. It gives you strength and calories to burn. And so you need even a a forgettable meal. Some meals are really, really good. And some meals you remember for a long time. And I bet you can think of a special meal. Maybe it was something your great-grandma used to cook at Christmas and you can remember the smells and the tastes and the menu and all that. Or maybe it's your favorite restaurant I love going to this place, and I have a special thing that I like to order. And a few meals really stick out in your brain. And what I'm telling you is that sermons are like that, right? Some of them are bad. Not necessarily harmful, just bad. And you listen to it, and you say, that was terrible. I didn't understand what he was talking about, and it didn't make sense. And why did he bring this up? And... He shouldn't have said that. It was just bad. It didn't, it didn't fit together. It didn't go. Some of them are harmful. Some of them say things that are not true. And people take those things in and they take root in their hearts. 
Um, I think especially of sermons that are preached at funerals sometimes are really, really bad. And people are emotional and they're grieving and they take those words in. And sometimes those are not true words that are shared. And that can be a harmful thing. Some are forgettable. In fact, the vast majority are forgettable. And some people criticize preaching because they say, no one's even going to remember it. Over Sunday lunch, no one's going to remember it Monday. No one's going to remember it the next week. If I asked you to go back and say, what did we talk about Sunday? A lot of you would say, uh... And I'll be honest, if you asked me to go back on the spot and say, what did you talk about Sunday? I would say, uh... Let me think about that. They're forgettable. You need them, right? Just like you need a forgettable meal to get you through, to keep you going. You need that daily, weekly reminder Uh, that injection of truth, some of them are memorable in a good way, right? Some of them stick with you, and you remember where you were and where you were seated and who the speaker was and what the the topic was about. Even if you couldn't repeat the whole sermon, something stands out to you. And I thought about that this week, and I thought, uh, I think I could count on one, maybe two hands, After 30 years of listening to sermons, I think I could give you just a few that really I remember and really made an impact. It doesn't mean the others weren't important. It just means for some reason a few of them stick with me. And I'll give you a couple of examples. When I was in high school, the guy on the left is John Randalls. He's passed away, but anybody ever heard John Randalls preach? So John Randalls came to our church in Amarillo, and it was kind of a Bible conference revival type thing. So he's preaching on the evening, in the evening. And he's preaching on the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal, which is a great story. And when you combine that story with John Randall's, who's about three-fourths crazy, it was memorable. And he got to the point in the story, he read it, and he's kind of going through the story. He got to the part where the prophets of Baal are cutting each other and screaming around and dancing around and all of that. And he got off the platform, and he, you think I'm exaggerating, like that he kind of went around the front. I'm not exaggerating. He started running laps in the sanctuary, screaming and acting like these prophets of Baal and hollering out and sort of giving you this visual of what it might, what it might have looked like. And for a teenage boy, it didn't get much better than that. I'm like... <laughs> The guy walked in with a mullet, that's brownie point number one, and number two, he's running laps in the middle of the sermon, screaming and hollering, and it was really great. And it was a good sermon, too. And I can remember, I could describe to you the conviction I felt at the end of the sermon when he drove home the point, quit limping between two, right? Who are you going to serve? Are you going to serve Baal or are you going to serve the Lord? Quit going back and forth between these two opinions. Another one that I remember is the picture on the right is Russ Moore. Dr. Russ Moore. He's the head of the ERLC Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission for Southern Baptist. Uh, he was a member of the church Brooke and I attended in Louisville, Ninth and O Baptist Church. And one Easter Sunday, Easter Sunday, we're in the sanctuary, we're singing songs, we're about halfway through the song set, And the pastor, our pastor's name was Bill Cook. I've told you that before. Bill Cook was standing on the front row, you know, ready to preach. He turns and he walks out the back and he leaves. And you're like, "Uh, you better hurry if you're going to the bathroom because this song's wrapping up pretty quick. 
And it wasn't a bathroom run. He was sick. And it just hit him. And he said, this has never happened to me, but there is absolutely no way that I can preach. Well, Dr. Moore was a member of our church. And Dr. Cook sent his wife in to Dr. Moore, who's just sitting over on the side singing, and said, you got two more stanzas to get a sermon ready because you're preaching on Easter Sunday. And so he walked up Easter Sunday, and he said, well, I've thought about this sermon for about two minutes, and here we go. And he preached on Ezekiel 37, the valley of dry bones. And he talked about how we are dead in our sins like this valley and how we need God to give us life. And he tied it in with the resurrection that these dry bones were thrown in the ground and the Spirit of God blew over Jesus and brought him back to life. And I can remember it. And I don't remember if it was a long sermon or a short sermon, but I remember the text and I remember what he talked about and I remember the event in the place. And so some sermons stay with you. And as I'm describing this, you're probably thinking, well, I can remember a sermon at such and such church and -and so-and-so was preaching and this was the occasion. It was a Sunday morning or it was a revival service or it was a a youth camp that I attended and, and something stands out to you. Some sermons are not just impactful for individuals like that, but they sort of take on a life of their own, and they impact millions of people, masses of people. And I'll give you just a couple examples. Um, Pictures up on the screen here, four examples. Jonathan Edwards, we'll start on the left and move to the right. Jonathan Edwards, in 1740, give or take, he preached a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And if you've taken a Um, English literature class in college, you may have had to read that sermon. I remember a class at WT, uh, we had to read this sermon and talk about it. He actually preached that sermon twice in the same year. He preached it once in Connecticut and once in Massachusetts. And people remember that. The title is, is memorable, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Some of the things he says in that sermon are just Uh, images that you'll never be able to get out of your brain. He talks about the sinner standing before God and that it's it's as if you were you were hanging over a vast pit and all that was holding you up was a single spider's web. And judgment is coming. And at any moment that web could break and you could go crashing into judgment. And he says things like that and people remember that sermon. Uh, Another example W.A. Criswell. Anybody ever heard W.A. Criswell preach? A few of you. I know he's preached in Odessa multiple times. Um, He was the pastor of First Baptist Dallas. When he was 75 years old, this was in 1985, he preached a sermon in Dallas at the Southern Baptist Convention when the fight was raging between the conservatives and the, the liberals. He preached a sermon titled, Whether We Live or Die. And many... Church historians, Southern Baptist scholars look back on that sermon, whether we live or die, preached at the Southern Baptist Convention before they voted for the first conservative president of the SBC in many, many, many years. And they say that sermon turned the tide for the convention. That one sermon, God used that message to bring massive, massive change to an entire denomination of people. And you may have no idea that W.A. Criswell existed or that he ever preached that sermon or that there was a controversy or any of it, but you're part of a Bible-believing Southern Baptist church because he preached that sermon. That's an impactful thing. Paul Washer is the next guy on the screen. Uh, In 2002, he was at a youth rally weekend camp sort of deal, 
and there was lots of entertainment, there was lots of silliness, there was lots of um, storytelling, there was lots of shallow preaching, and he got up to preach, and he preached a sermon called the shocking, sometimes it's called the shocking message, sometimes it's called the shocking youth message. Um, It is, by some accounts, the most watched sermon on the internet of all time. Millions upon millions upon millions of people have streamed that sermon or downloaded that sermon or watched that sermon. Um, and I've, I've watched it. I've listened to it. It's not that great compared to other sermons. But for whatever reason, the moment, the occasion, uh, the time that he preached it, it just sort of took on a life of its own. And it's a good sermon. And it's had a tremendous impact on a lot of people. One last one I put up just to indulge myself is R.C. Sproul, um, a very influential theologian in Protestant circles, evangelical circles. He passed away in 2017. And uh, many people look back on his life and his ministry. Uh, He has tapes. He has VHS. He has DVDs. He has stuff on the Internet, all kinds of medium for people to watch. Uh, He preached a message in 2008 that I got to listen to in Louisville, Kentucky, called The Curse Motif of the Atonement. The Curse Motif of the Atonement. And many have looked back on that uh, as he passed away a few years ago and said that message summarizes what he was about. That one message is the hallmark sermon that describes what he believed and what he preached and what his ministry was all about. Obviously, into the mix of sermons that have obtained worldwide fame, and influence, we should put Jesus of Nazareth and the Sermon on the Mount. You understand when we turn to the Gospel of Matthew, we don't have Jesus's sermon manuscript, right? When I prepare a message, I usually have some sort of notes or manuscript. I give it to the guys upstairs so they can follow along. We don't have that from Jesus. What we have is Matthew and a little bit from Luke describing to us, sort of summarizing or paraphrasing This is what Jesus said in that message. And it's in the Gospel of Matthew that we find uh, the full version, you could say, of the Sermon on the Mount. And Matthew's an interesting book because Matthew, the Gospel, is structured by sermons. The whole book hangs on sermons. And you can look at Mark and Luke and John and see how they put their Gospels together. But Matthew put his Gospel together based on Uh, five sermons. So Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 9 uh, to 10 is the Sermon on Missions. In chapter 13, there's a sermon about the kingdom of God. In chapter 18, there's a sermon about community. How do you live together as the people of God? And then Matthew 23, 4, and 5 uh, is a sermon on eschatology, sometimes called the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus talks about the end times. And Matthew sort of sets the stage and he describes the life of Jesus using these, these sermons as building blocks, you could say. And in between all of these messages, he tells you Jesus went here and he healed this person. And he performed this miracle and these things happened and he cast out demons. But he keeps coming back to these sermons. And when you read through Matthew, if you have a, a red letter Bible, you'll notice that the red letters tend to come in chunks. There's long chunks, five big chunks of them, where Jesus is preaching uh, these sermons. The most famous is the Sermon on the Mount. And what we're going to do on Wednesday nights is look at one little piece of it. And so in my mind, if we're going to look at one piece of a sermon, we ought to take, if we're going to just mosey through this thing, 
we ought to take a week to think about the Sermon on the Mount as a whole. What was the point of the message, right? If we're going to pull out one little piece and dissect it, let's think just for one night about the Sermon as a whole. And that's what I want to try to do tonight. Take your Bible. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, just to set the stage before we even jump in to what's on your notes. Matthew 5, 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So we want to be careful. We don't want to try to read too much into what Matthew's telling us, but we also want to understand Matthew gave us this little bumper to the sermon for a reason. And Matthew says he saw the crowds, right? People were pressing in around him. They were flocking to him. They were interested in him. There was a lot of folks coming. And when Jesus saw that, he went up on the mountain. And some of you say, yeah, he went up so that he could speak down uh, and they could hear him. Some of you say, no, 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 he went up to get away from them. And Matthew doesn't tell us, does he? He says he saw the crowds and he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, this is one of the things I'm jealous about. In, in ancient Jewish culture, the preacher got to sit down, and the listeners stood up, which is a great deal. But that's not the way we do it. So when it says he sat down, that's the idea. It would be the equivalent of saying the preacher stood up to speak, right? He's ready to deliver this, this message. He sat down, and then Matthew says his disciples came to him. And it doesn't necessarily mean all the crowds were left behind. It doesn't mean that uh, non-disciples didn't get to listen at all or that uh, Peter was acting as a bouncer on the edge of, of the crowd saying, you're in, you're out. But what Matthew is saying is, Jesus is directing this sermon to his disciples. He's talking to people who believe in him. Right? These guys and gals, they haven't pieced all the parts and, and questions together and figured it all out about who he is and what he's going to do. But they've bought in and they believe that he's the one God promised to send. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. And Jesus is speaking to those people. That fact alone is interesting. Because when we get to the part about the Lord's Prayer, you've got to remind yourself Jesus is talking to his people about prayer. He's not just saying this is for anyone. He's talking about if you and me are in relationship, this is how we commune together. This is how you talk to me. And it's a strange thing that so often in life, the Lord's Prayer is sort of viewed as the lowest common denominator. Anyone can say it. Anyone can participate in it. Let's say it before a game. Let's say it before a big event. Let's say it whatever, and we all sort of join in there. But it's part of a message, originally, where Jesus is speaking specifically to his disciples. This is for us. This is insider communication, if you want to think about it that way. So here's a few lessons from the sermon, right? Big picture lessons about the Sermon on the Mount. Number one, the Sermon on the Mount is easy to read, but hard to understand. Easy to read, hard to understand. If you were to sit down and read through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, uh, unless you really, really, really struggle to read, it doesn't take that long. 
It's just three chapters. You can work through it relatively easily. The vocabulary is not particularly difficult. You're not going to find a a whole lot of big words that you don't know what they mean. You're not going to find uh, grammar sentences that are particularly difficult to understand. Right On a surface level, you can read it and you can understand what Jesus is saying. But to really get it and to have it sink down into your bones and to let the message change you is a little bit more difficult. And the same thing is true of the Lord's Prayer, right? We read it earlier. None of you raised your hand and said, wait, 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 slow down. I'm having trouble here. This, this is tricky stuff. i got to really think about the words. I mean, you know it. You're familiar with it. We read it. It was pretty easy. Al Mohler says this, the Lord's Prayer takes less than 20 seconds to read aloud. It takes a lifetime to learn. I mean, you can just, we said it earlier. We read through it easily. Some of you read it off the page. Some of you said it by memory. Uh, It's quick. It's short. It's not complicated. But it's something that takes a lifetime to learn and to actually apply to your life. That's true for the Sermon on the Mount. And it's also true for the Lord's Prayer as part of the Sermon on the Mount. There is simplicity here, but there's also a depth and a complexity that is challenging. Number two. The Sermon on the Mount moves beyond externals and it forces the reader to wrestle with issues on a heart level. On a heart level. This is true for the sermon. This is true for the Lord's Prayer. Take your Bible and look at Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So we talked about this a few weeks back when we went through the Ten Commandments. And we talked about this command. Do not murder. You shall not murder. That's the external. And the internal is the idea Jesus coming along saying... Don't let yourself off the hook too quick because if you're angry with your brother, you have violated the heart of the commandment. He doesn't say that murder and anger are morally equivalent. He does not say that. He does not say they're exactly the same. What he does say is if you're angry with your brother in your heart, you have broken the commandment. Maybe not in the fullest sense of how you could break the commandment, but you have broken it. And he says the same thing in a few verses later about lust, right? He says, if you've looked at a woman with lustful intent, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. No, it's not morally equivalent to real, quote-unquote, real adultery, but you've broken the spirit and the heart of the command. He's going to talk in chapter 6 where we're really going to camp out. He's going to talk about spiritual disciplines like Uh, giving to the needy and praying and fasting. And he's going to say, it's not enough just to do the right thing. It's not enough just to go through the motions of doing something. It's really a matter of the heart. What's your intention in doing this thing? What's your motivation in doing this thing? He's going to get to the end of the sermon. Matthew 7, he's going to say, look, on the last day, people are going to stand before Jesus and they're going to start listing off all the things they did for Jesus. And Jesus is going to look at those people and say, I don't know you. I never knew you. 
the external is not just enough. Right? If I asked you to come back in a week memorizing the Lord's Prayer, and then we can check this box off and move, move to something you know, more challenging or difficult, leave this to the kids and the youth, the adults are going to take the advanced track, that'd be great. The external you could check off. But it's not just about mastering the external part. It's about the internal. And the, the, the Lord's Prayer, as part of the Sermon on the Mount, is moving you past externals, in dealing with issues on a heart level. Number three, Sermon on the Mount reveals our sin and our need for Jesus. It reveals our sin and it reveals our need for Jesus. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. Jesus says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. 2,000 years later, we read scribes and Pharisees and we substitute bad guy. But when these people heard Jesus, they substituted the best of guys. Unless your righteousness is better than the best of the best, you're not going to enter the kingdom. Look what he says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, in case there's any, any objections or any, anything that's unclear. Verse 48, you therefore must be perfect. What kind of perfect? Well, as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the standard. And when you read those two verses, sort of set in the middle of the sermon, you realize, well, I haven't done that. I haven't lived up to that. I've been angry with my brother. I've lusted after other people that were not my spouse and things that were not mine. And I've gone through the motions uh, in religious ritual without it meaning anything in my heart. I've done all of those things and more and then some and worse. I, I don't live up to that. God demands perfect righteousness and the sermon shows you you're worse than you'd like to think that you are. James Boyce has a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount and he says this, The Sermon on the Mount shows us the absolute necessity of new birth. Show me a man or a woman who claims that he's living up to the standards of the Sermon on the Mount, and I'll show you a man who has either never read it, doesn't understand what it's teaching, or is lying. If you can come through the Sermon on the Mount and say, you know, I feel pretty good about myself. I'm doing all right. You need to go back and read it again. And you and I need to understand that the Lord's Prayer is set in that context. It's in the middle of a sermon that completely exposes us. It completely exposes us as sinful people standing before a holy God. That's the context in which we find the Lord's Prayer. Uh, I don't know what number we're on. I think it's number four. Sermon on the Mount focuses on heaven and earth. Heaven and earth. And we're going to look at, at a few verses here towards the beginning to uh, sort of think through this a little bit. Matthew 5, 1 to 12, or 2 to 12, is the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes are talking to you about a vision of reality and a hope of reward that is not found here. Right? Here, you're persecuted, you mourn, you grieve, you suffer. It's bad, it's rough, it's difficult, there's challenges. And Jesus says, you're blessed in all of those situations because there's a great kingdom for you and you're going to see the face of God and there's going to be a reward and it's going to be really, really great. But it's not going to be now. 
It's going to be later. So you read the Beatitudes and they're pointing you to this other. This what's next. Pointing you to heaven. But then you keep reading and you get to Matthew 5, 13, 14, 15, 16. And you read this stuff about salt and light. And you realize, okay, but Jesus wants me to make a difference now too. It's not that I just get to set my mind on heaven and say, let the world go to hell in a handbasket. My reward's not here, but I'm supposed to be salt and light here. And right out of the gate in the sermon, he's pointing you to heaven, and he's also pointing you to earth. And he's saying, both of these things matter. They both matter. And Christians, in every age, in every time, in every place, really struggle with this tension. And usually, like we do with everything, we want to get way out of whack. And so you got some that say, I just want, to, I just want heaven. This world is lousy, it's terrible, I, I, I don't like it, it's not honoring to God, I'm sick of it, I'm disgusted by it, I just want to get out of here, I just want to go to heaven, and in the meantime, I just want to huddle up with my family and try to keep them away from all of this bad stuff, and I just want to pull away and seclude, and we're just waiting for heaven, right? That's some of the beatitude stuff, okay? That's, okay, heaven is good, but what about the salt and light stuff? You don't light a light to cover it. And salt isn't any good if you keep it in the jar. It's got to get out. Okay. Some of us tend to make the opposite mistake. Some of us say, look, we're to be salt and light right now. We are to change the world. We are to make this world the greatest place it can be. We are to help uh, fix poverty and help uh, get people education. And we're here, we exist as the people of God to just make everything as good as it can be right now. And in that quest, a lot of those Christians, that's sort of the, the left leaning or liberal leaning side of Christianity, they tend to forget okay, be salt and light now, but you understand eternity is coming. And more, more than education, more than career opportunities, more than community development, what these people need to hear is the gospel that will save them and reconcile them to God because heaven is coming and hell is coming and eternity is just around the corner. And Jesus, in this most famous sermon, he sort of holds both without letting one trump the other. He says, right, your reward is not now, it's coming and you need to fix your eyes on that And you're blessed now in spite of your circumstances because of what's coming. But right now, I have something for you to do. Right now matters. You don't get to disengage now. You don't get to pull back now. You're going to be salt and light now. So let's just look at the first beatitude. We're just going to talk about one for the sake of time. Matthew 5.1, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. In verse 2 and 3 really summarize the entire point of the sermon that's going to follow and the entire point of the Lord's Prayer. He opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. A lot of people listen to Jesus, they read through the Gospels and they come away and they say, it sounds like Jesus was only and always angry with rich people and said poor people were the best and poverty was the way to go. And a lot of people have that idea of Jesus and a lot of people don't like that idea. The world doesn't like the idea that you should 
not want money, and they push back against it. And I ran across a couple of quotes this week. Uh, you could find so many quotes about this. How many of you ever, ever watched a Sophie Tucker movie? She is old school, and she was an immigrant and became a movie star in the early 1900s, and she just gets right to the point. She says, listen, I've been rich and I've been poor. Believe me, rich is better. I've had them both, and I'm just telling you, better to have money. I don't want to be poor. There's a musician named Art Alexis, and this is a lyric from one of his songs. He says, I hate the people who tell you money is the root of all it kills. Those people have never been poor, and they have never had the joy of a welfare Christmas. I want money. Right? Understand that when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, he's not saying... Poverty is the best way to live your life. It's not what he's saying. He's talking about being poor in spirit. This is on your notes. Jesus isn't promoting poverty. He is calling his disciples to recognize they are spiritually bankrupt before God. He isn't promising an earthly kingdom... Instead, he's promising his disciples they will inherit a spiritual kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who are are aware of their spiritual bankruptcy. Why are they blessed? Because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They don't get the kingdom now, but it's coming. It's in the future. It's out there. They're looking for it. They're waiting for it. They're hoping for it. What Jesus is talking about is the opposite of moral and spiritual pride. right? Genuine humility and brokenness before God. The person who really gets a grasp of God and His holiness and really gets a glimpse of just how sinful they are and realizes, I'm in a world of mess. I'm in a really, really big mess that I can't fix. If God is as holy as the Bible says he is, and I have fallen as short as the Bible says I've fallen, I have a really, really big problem. And the beauty of it all is that when you get that, when you understand, I don't deserve the kingdom, Jesus says, then you get it. And if you think you deserve it, you don't get it. Right? It's the people in chapter 7 who say, We did this, this, and this. We should get to come in. And Jesus says, you don't get to come in. Right? That's not being poor in spirit. That's being boastful in spirit. That's being proud in spirit. That's thinking that you're entitled to something with God. Those people don't get the kingdom in the end. It's the people who say, I don't deserve it. And there's absolutely nothing I can do to earn my way in or or merit my way in. Jesus says, well, then you get it. Again, here's a quote from James Boyce. Recognize as a first principle for understanding the Sermon on the Mount that we cannot fill the standards of the Sermon on the Mount by ourselves. Paradoxically, Jesus teaches us that when the Sermon on the Mount, or that the Sermon on the Mount, is only for those who know they can't live by it. It's only for people who realize, I haven't done it and I can't do it. Then you're ready to get it. Then the sermon is for you. When you approach it saying, all right, here we go. I got my checklist ready. I'm going to do it all. You've already missed it. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's the summary of the person. Matthew 5.3. That's the summary of the person that knows how to pray to God. 
Right? That's the mindset and the heart condition of the person who can truly pray the Lord's Prayer. Let's talk about salt and light. This is the earth part, the here and now part. Um, Matthew 5, let's just read it quickly. 13 to 16. You're the salt of the earth. If salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket or on a stand. It gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We realize our bankruptcy before God. We're longing for heaven. But now we're going to be salt and we're going to be light. And I've read all kinds of explanations of, okay, what does it mean to be salt? What does it mean to be light? I mean, we can just start listing off things. And a lot of Bible scholars try to laser beam in on one thought. I think the reason Jesus brings up salt and light is that there isn't just one place your mind goes, but it's a number of things. So I'm just going to list a few of those thoughts off. Jesus' audience would have heard him talk about salt, and they would have thought about preservation, flavor, and thirst. Preservation, flavor, and thirst. They used it, you know, if you've studied, as a preservative to prevent decay. And I think one of the the things Jesus has in mind here is that you're to be out in the world to make it not so bad. God is well aware of the fallen condition of sinful men and women's hearts. But he's sending his people out into the midst of that to slow down and prevent the decay. Flavor. It's used for flavor. You know and I know that the world, we see it on full display unchecked today. The world is looking for pleasure and joy, and happiness. And they're looking in all the wrong places. And the job of the Christian is to say, we know where you can find that. Don't turn there, there, and there to make your life better. Turn here. This is where you find it. Thirst. Salt makes you thirsty. You remember the Seinfeld episode where they keep talking about the pretzels are making me thirsty, right? The pretzels are, these pretzels are making me thirsty. Salt makes you thirsty, and Christians ought to live our lives in such a way that the people who interact with us are thirsty for the gospel. That they realize there is something missing in my life. There's something that, that I need from you. Our lives should make following Jesus appealing. So there's a few thoughts about salt. Uh, what about light? Jesus' audience would have heard him talk about light and they would have thought about exposure, growth, and guidance. Exposure, growth, in guidance. Light reveals things. Light exposes things that are previously unseen or hidden. And you know that the gospel, God's word, exposes sin. And you know, and I know, that that's not always a popular thing. Jesus himself talked about that. He said, look, People don't want to come to the light. They love the darkness because their deeds are evil and they don't want to be exposed. They want to keep those things hidden. They don't want to be shown for who they truly are. But the gospel does that. God's people ought to do that. Growth. Light. You need, you need light for things to grow, for plants to grow. 
And I think that what Jesus is saying, or part of what he's saying, is that our job is to help people grow. We're the light of the world. We're to encourage growth in people, spiritual maturity in people, and guidance. The Old Testament talks about a light guiding people. Your word is a, a light to my feet, a lamp for my path. And the gospel and the good news of God's word helps us see where we're going. It guides us, and God's people are here called to be light. You are the light of the world. Show them where they need to go. Guide them to the truth and lead them to the Savior. So what I want you to see really as we wrap up on on the sermon is the idea that right out of the gate, Jesus has a focus in this message, a dual focus. Partly it's on heaven and partly it's on the earth. And they're both there right out of the gate, right? The Beatitudes pointing you to heaven and eternity And the salt and light saying, right here matters. And what I'm telling you is, when we get to the Lord's Prayer and we start digging in, you're going to see both of those things in the prayer. It's not just a prayer only and all about heaven. And it's not just a prayer only and all about life on earth. Both of those things are meshed together. And as we learn how to pray, we've got to learn how to combine those things in our prayer life.